Douglas Adams was an English author, best known for his novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, was, first it was a radio program, and then a novel, and then a movie, and then another movie. And uh, he tells a story, though, in the, in the intro to one of his kind of later editions of how he came up with the idea. It's 1971, and he's in Innsbruck, Austria. He writes, as it is, I went to lie in a field. Truth be known, he had had a few drinks before this. He mentions that, too. <laughs> I went to lie in a field along with my copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. And when the stars came out, it occurred to me that if only someone would write a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy as well, I, for one, would be off like a shot. <laughs> Having had this thought, I promptly fell asleep and forgot about it for six years. I went to Cambridge University. I took a number of baths and a degree in English. I worried a lot about girls and what had happened to my bike, and he goes on to tell more. But you know, it's the usual stuff a university student is worried about, concerned about, thinking about. But that, that little phrase, I for one would be off like a shot if there was a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That sentiment is not insignificant at all. You know, in my early years at, at university, I, I could relate in some ways to those, to those worries and longings. The question for me then as a, as a young adult and the question for many of us that still sometimes gnaws at us in the back of our mind at certain junctures in our lives, it often goes something like this. Is there any source to address our biggest questions? Not just about girls and what happened to my bike. Now, I actually did have my bike stolen while at grad school at university, so I can relate to that part too. But the question is, where do we go to truly address the big issues of meaning? Who we are, why we are, why we are here at all? Is there any real meaning? And maybe the one that we're really searching for, maybe the most sometimes, is there real joy in real life and how? Uh, this fall, we've been working through uh, a little letter in the Bible where the author, Paul, he's writing to a, a little group of Jesus followers he helped start this community in the, in the ancient city of Philippi in Greece. And this letter sparkles with a sort of tangible joy, which is weird because Paul is writing from jail. And you wouldn't maybe expect that. He doesn't even know if he's going to live to see the next month, in fact. And so just a little background. Um, Paul, the writer, he's had this life-changing encounter with the risen Jesus. And he's been sent now to tell people all throughout the ancient world about the Savior who's come to meet him. He's in jail now because of his commitment to sharing the Jesus story. But why would preaching Jesus land you in jail? Well, the first Christians and Christians today, of course, believe that Jesus wasn't just a good man, a good teacher, who could argue with that, but to blow up their entire categories that he was God himself who had come in the flesh. These believers now worship Jesus. They celebrate him as God the Son who laid down his glory. He came from heaven to earth, even going so far as to die at criminal's death on a cross, though he was innocent. Why? What would motivate that? Well, you and me, 
out of incredible sacrificial love, he comes to repair the, the tear in the fabric that there's been between humanity and God. Through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he makes it possible for us to be forgiven, to be made new. I mean, any of you ever wrestled with your guilt as well? Don't put up your hand. Of course you have. <laughs> All of my self-centeredness and, and what it leads to in my relationships with God and with others, even my own self, there's this break that's happened. Jesus, we read in the Bible, takes that upon himself. He pays for that. And that it's the historical reality of what Jesus does that leads Paul to announce this message far and wide, but it's a subversive message. It lands him in jail because he's announcing that Jesus, not Caesar, is the world's true king and savior. So now Paul's sitting in a Roman jail. It's probably the late 19, or pardon me, the late 50s, as in 50s, uh, AD, and he's awaiting trial. <laughs> And it's a trial that could end in his execution. So he's writing this letter to encourage that little band of followers to stay faithful to their calling, to keep living in a way that reflects and resembles the same pattern of life that Jesus himself had, a, a pattern of pouring yourself out for the sake of others. Now, one of the things that Paul does in, in sending this little letter, and one of the ways that God is still using this letter to shape and change and challenge us. It comes out in this little word that we find right in the prayer at the beginning of his letter. He prays this. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern. Notice how many thinking words are piled up here. Focus on that word discern for a moment. To discern is be be able to tell the difference between things that matter and things that don't matter. It's to be able to tell what is good and better and best. Well, and more than that, too. It, it, you can tell between what's good and what's rubbish as well. He wants their love for each other and for their city to be informed, thoughtful, well-reasoned. You see, Christian faith is not blind faith. It's well-reasoned faith. It's trust with good reason. And how to live that faith in the real world is equally to be well reasoned out too. And that's what we'll see today. So let's begin where we started, with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, Adam's uh, a self-described radical atheist. He just doesn't want anybody to think he's even agnostic. I totally reject the notion of God. That's where he starts from. Here's what he writes. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfathomable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 92 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. Now, it was the 1970s he's writing in, so they were pretty neat at that time. This planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. This is also the story of a book 
a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Not an Earth book, never published on Earth, nevertheless, a wholly remarkable book. This book has already supplanted the great encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom. It scores over the older and more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it's slightly cheaper. And secondly, it has the words, don't panic, inscribed in large, friendly letters on its cover. Don't panic. Douglas Adams is acutely aware of the human condition that we are searching for happiness. A happiness that seems always to be slipping out of our grasp. And as he put it, the solution that most people are pursuing for this problem has to do with exchanging green pieces of paper. Lots of people, he says, were mean. Most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Adam knows, and so do most people I know who have slowed down to think about it enough, that the idea of real joy in real life seems either out of reach or out of touch with reality. Sure, kids might still believe that. Yeah, maybe if you're really naive and you've just had an, an, an incredibly charmed life so far, you might still believe that's possible. But not if you've been around the block in life. Now, I was talking with a friend about this idea earlier this week, and, and she said, oh, that sounds like Velchmertz. I didn't know what she meant either, <laughs> so I looked it up. Uh, Velchmertz is the German word for world pain. It describes a world weariness felt from a perceived mismatch between the ideal image of the world, how it should be, and how it really is. This mismatch. The world as it should be, the world as it actually is. Why does Douglas Adams want to stick up his thumb to the sky and hitch a ride to anywhere but here? Why do the big friendly words, don't panic, sound both kind of inviting and ridiculous? Why not panic? That's why we need our text this morning. I'm gonna read it in a moment, but remember, if someone has reason to panic, it's Paul. He's in prison, he's potentially facing execution. The people he's writing to, this Jesus community he started, are now facing persecution as well because of what he told them. He writes this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness, or could be translated your forbearance, your patience under suffering. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, or, as we could translate, don't panic. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, or even seen in me. Put that into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
What an incredibly upbeat message. It's almost as though Paul has written over this whole passage in big, friendly letters. Don't panic. It's so hopeful. Maybe too hopeful. Rejoice? Always? Really? For those of you who got sick this year, maybe even been battling cancer, and I know there's a few of you in this room, or you're walking through a painful breakup, or for those of us who've lost loved ones recently, this could sound, well, a bit out of touch with reality, out of touch with the real life part. That's where the call to thinking well is so important. Paul says, whatever is true, think about these things. Earlier in this series, I talked about how we, we can't know real joy in real life without knowing our purpose, why we're here. Many people, thinking from a, a sort of a secular frame or perspective, they define meaning in life as coming from making a difference, and that makes sense to me. Talking about having a purpose, right? But if you think about this view that there is no God, there's no external source of meaning, no ultimate direction to the universe. We have a final answer that, <laughs> that about making a difference that's not particularly encouraging. Philosopher Thomas Nagel, writing from this secular frame, he puts it bluntly. Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all traces of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things big and small that we do in life, none of these explanations, uh, pardon me, none of the explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you ever did exist. It won't matter if you ever existed. It really doesn't matter that you do exist. That's brutal and honest, but it's honest. For most people I know, however, that explanation is just not satisfying. Somehow it doesn't seem to ring true with our experience of life and the desire we have for significance and meaning, like, is love a real thing? Is what I have with my wife and my family, is it only a complex of chemical reactions that's meant to ensure the survival of our species? Well, it's, it's not less than that. Chemicals are involved, that's true. In the biological process of genetics, that matters. In my view, that's part of God's design. But most of us don't think we can truly reduce love down to just chemistry and genetics. No. Love is a real thing. And it matters that we love others, that we seek the good of others, that we make a difference in the world, right? But what if the secular view of the universe is right? That there is no God, that when we die we rot, well, another honest philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, he's right. He says there could be no moral obligation, no humanistic values, values that say that like all humans should be treated as equals and with fairness. You can only have that view with belief in God, he says. Here's how he puts it himself. And it is Movember, so let's just take a moment to appreciate his mustache. <laughs> 
I couldn't believe how many pictures of this. There's better, bigger mustache pictures. Anyways, here's how he puts it. When one gives up Christian belief, one thereby deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality. For the latter, and he's talking about Christian morality, is absolutely not self-evident. One must make this point clear again and again. Christianity, and he's talking about egalitarian values, this idea that all people are equal, that all people are equally valuable and should be treated with fairness in the world. He says this, Christianity possesses truth only if God is truth. It stands or falls on belief in God. What he's saying is this, um, the secular sort of subtraction story, which says, okay, we've got sort of this history of Christianity, we've built many of our values around it, now we just subtract God from the mix, but we keep the values, he says, no, you can't do that. Those values are there because of belief in God. That's what he's saying. He's saying this, the secular view, if it's right, we can't call anything evil, not really. Racism, sexism, violence against women or children, or men for that matter, no, Nietzsche says, we just have our preferences. Nothing is truly right or wrong. That's an honest assessment of what happens when you begin to push that secular frame all the way to its logical ends. Why believe all humans are equal? Why treat them as if they are? The secular frame has no basis to make those claims. We may believe in equality, but then we have to ask why. Why believe in that at all? Now, here's what I think Paul is doing in this section, and we're going to come back to our text now. He said that we're to focus, to give our attention to, to think about. The word he uses is legizomai, and it means to kind of dwell on, to think about, or even to evaluate. Evaluate these things. Think about them. Focus on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, and distinguish between what is actually excellent and praiseworthy and what just appears to be. That's the discernment piece. That's thinking. Here's what we need to see. The virtues that Paul is listing, they are not self-evident. Nietzsche himself said that, and he's right. They are not self-evident. Like, what is really right? What is goodness? What is lovely? Go out on the streets of Kamloops and just poll people randomly. What is right? What is good? What is lovely? See how many various and incompatible answers you get, and you will get quite a lot. The meaning of these virtues requires a basis, a way of measuring. If Nietzsche was right, if there is no God, then there is no basis for saying that something is actually right or wrong. But the Christian view offers us what I think our heads and our hearts and our lives already know, there is such a thing as justice. Yes, there is. There must be a way to evaluate what is true and good and right. And the basis is God's own self. It's God's character as the one who embodies truth. He is the standard of what is right and good and pure. And how do we know what God is like? Though that becomes the next big question. Well, God, out of his love for us, doesn't leave us in the dark. He reveals himself as he shows up to the people of Israel, and that story gets recorded in the scriptures, and I believe those are true. 
But the whole point of that story is actually the coming of Jesus himself who says, I am the truth. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He embodies the truth of God. He is God. So God loves us enough to show us what's true, and it's himself. As we've seen throughout this series, too, the pattern of life that Jesus displays is to humbly give of himself for the sake of others, all the way to the point of dying for us. That pattern of self-giving is is definitive, really, of God's own character. C.S. Lewis put it like this, and as we've seen a few times in this series, self-giving is absolute reality, meaning that's at the very heart of God. And so if you want to know real joy in real life, trust in God's grace for you. Let that change you from the inside out, and then get on with living a life that is poured out in love for God and for others. See, in the ancient world, there was many moral philosophers who would agree with Paul that humans need to focus on what is true and noble, et cetera, et cetera, but they would disagree about the basis for making decisions about those things and actually come to different conclusions as well. Um, Scholar Stephen Fowle, he gives an example. He says this, so imagine with me. Imagine a hypothetical Christian martyr, someone who dies for her faith in the city of Philippi, and this was likely happening by the time Paul wrote this letter. To her brothers and sisters in the Lord, she displays exemplary attachment to the truth, meaning she's attached herself to the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All that means for her and her community. Her death has a sort of nobility to it. Moreover, in these circumstances, Hers is the only just action for a believer to take. But to the Roman magistrates who execute her, she's a liar or deceived. Stubborn, she continues to say that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and unreasonable. And the course of action they follow is the only just one. You see, based on the message of Jesus, the Christian martyr is attached to the truth And her commitment to Jesus is noble and right, even if it ends in death. But to the Roman magistrates, on the basis of the Pax Romana, she's the exact opposite. A dangerous, subversive, stubborn liar. On that basis, they're executing her is, in their minds, true, noble, and just. We need to see this. Any basis for discerning what is truly true comes from some vision of life, some story that we have bought into. Everybody is believing some story. The secular story that Nietzsche narrates, and he believes, it leads to a particular view of how we evaluate what is true and just and right. And his evaluation is this, nothing. Nothing's true or untrue or just or unjust. It just is. The story that the Roman Empire thrived on was the notion that only through the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome, which, by the way, came at the point of a sword. You you follow the emperor in his way or, or you lose your life. The empire story is one that only through our way of doing business will you be served. This is the story of empire, and it's continually being rehashed out in various ways throughout history. 
Then there's the consumerist story. That's the dominant one in Canadian culture at the moment. It says essentially personal happiness is the truth. And Pharrell tells us to clap along if we agree. You know the song. Clap along if you feel that happiness is the truth. Okay, that one. Um, in this story, the way to happiness or truth is that you need to be more. You, you have to have more. You have to be more attractive. You need to be noticed by others. You need to be successful in your work. Oh, and let me sell you the solution so that you can get that happiness that you're after. The Christian story is wholly different than all of those. It says God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed in joy. And out of their joy, the overflow of God's own self, God creates. And he creates us for connection with God and with others and a right relationship with our own self and the rest of creation. And God, out of deep love and concern for humanity, comes to remake our hearts since we as humans had chosen self-centeredness and, and sin over trust in God and the way he made us. It is sheer grace, God's gift, that we can be forgiven, remade, and then sent out living a new way in the world. This new way is one that recognizes the value of all people. It seeks justice and fairness in the world. And where each person knows their value and worth to God, it proclaims the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the hope of the world. And now if that is true, if this Jesus story, the way of focusing on what's really real, then what Paul says next is the logical outworking of that. And that brings us right back to the beginning of our text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Amen. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Why? <laughs> in, in the article I was reading on Weltschmerz, uh, the writers are kind of being cheeky and they offer the, this sort of self-assessment. See what, if you have angst or ennui or Weltschmerz and, and they say this, uh, do you have sadness in your heart for the world that can never be and sensible shoes? You've got Feltschmerz. Well, we really can live with real joy in the real world. We can rejoice in the Lord always because the world that we're longing for is becoming a reality. God, who is already making us new, and Danielle actually read this in that quote from John Piper. There's an alreadiness. God has come in Jesus. He is already remaking our hearts, but there's also a not yetness. It's still to come. And we trust in what God will do based on what God has done in the past. So to say rejoice is not to say think positive thoughts or just look for the good in everything. No. To rejoice is to rejoice in the Lord. Amen. It's to say to your heart and to those around you, look, God has come into the world. Jesus, God the Son, actually came to live among us. He gave his life in loving self-sacrifice to renew our relationship with God, promise us a hope and a future with him. We have reason, even in the midst of pain, even with the suffering and the sorrow, to lift up our hearts and our chests in praise. Why? Because he is making all things new, including all of us who put our trust in him. Do you see how that's not optimism? There's nothing to do with being optimistic. 
has everything to do with thinking well about what's real. This is real hope, and that's the source of our real joy. Um, Philip Kennison, he writes it this way. Joy is simply one of the consequences of being open to that which is beyond one's self. To pursue joy for its own sake in order to take delight in one's own delight, that's to ignore the crucial other directedness of joy. Joy comes from outside of us, and it comes from giving for the sake of others. You can't get joy by seeking joy. You can't get happiness by seeking happiness. Seek joy for your own sake, and you'll never have it. Joy is always the byproduct of something beyond ourselves. Joy comes from discovering who we are, what we're here for, and then living in line with what God made us all about. You want joy? Of course you do. We all do. But you'll never know real joy in the real world until you know the source of joy, the one who made your heart for himself. We rejoice in the Lord, in who he is and what he's done to guarantee our future. So rejoicing, it's not an emotional response to good circumstances. It's our settled disposition to trust God no matter what. It comes by recognizing that God will redeem not only our lives and our good parts, but even our tears. He will make all of our sadness even come untrue. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that death will be swallowed up in life. I dare to think that's possible. And that somehow even our joy will be greater in the life after this life, not despite our tears, but actually because of them too. Paul goes on to say in the next line, let your gentleness or forbearance be known to all. For those who are facing great opposition from their neighbors because they were following Jesus, Paul doesn't say retaliate, hurt them back. What goes around comes around, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, oh, forget those folks. Just unfriend them and move on. No. Be gentle. Respond, not in kind, but with kindness. Keep giving yourself for the sake of others, even those who might be hurting you right now. That's, that's at heart what he's saying. That's, that's a radical message. That doesn't really jive very well with, with how we often think about relationships today. That's what he's asking. Go read First Peter if you want to see that rehashed over and over again for those early Christians. But how? How do you live like that? The next line, the Lord is near. Yes, he is. Jesus promised his presence to his followers, and he gives us his presence now through the Holy Spirit. He makes good on his promise. And the result of the nearness of God, this is the reason we can do what Paul says we're to do next. Um, When we were studying this with our young adults, a lot of them They'd say, hey, you know this verse, right? Yeah, do not be anxious about anything, but, um, but in, in all things, present your request to God. They say, I know that verse, but I've never heard it connected to the verse right before, the Lord is near. The reason why we don't have to panic is because God is actually with us, and he's making good on his promise that he will be with us for all eternity. That's why, don't panic. <laughs> don't be anxious about anything. That's why it can actually be our disposition. I got a text from a friend, uh, Lisa, uh, on Friday, October 27th, and the text read, Dave, I need to ask a favor of you. Can you pray for Dale and his coworkers' safety right now, please? Now, getting that text from that friend always raises my heart rate a bit. 
Um, it certainly draws me to pray in a more, shall we say, earnest mode. Uh, we didn't know what was happening at the moment, uh, but when we, got, when we got that text, but Dale is an investigator with the RCMP, and it, so it's not usually a good thing when Lisa texts us and says, can you pray for Dale right now? We found out soon enough, of course, on the radio, um, and we saw the police planes circling over the five, um, Highway 5 North. You're aware that there were shots that were exchanged that day with a man in the RCMP. In a conversation with one of those officers involved, who also happens to be a part of our church, he basically said, when we have our trust in Jesus, we can go into a potentially deadly situation with a sort of peace that's outside of ourselves. We aren't alone. God is with us. We know our destiny. I can't imagine trying to do this job without that peace. Now, this isn't to say that serious incidents like this don't leave their mark on those who know Jesus personally. They do, and we need to pray for our police in that sense, too, for their psychological well-being and their, their hearts. But there is a peace that goes with them that's remarkable. It's tangible. It's true. And I want everyone in the world to know that peace. As Paul just said, the Lord is near. And that's the reason he can go us, to tell us to go on to pray, to bring our requests, our fears, our hurts to God with thanksgiving. Do you know that kind of confidence? Do you know that peace? That kind of security? I would say that you cannot know true joy. You cannot know satisfaction. Cannot know why you, hear, you are here or what your purpose is in life truly until you know and yield to the one who made your heart for himself. Um, I've been a Christian since I was five years old, and it, it was a legitimate conversion experience. I can remember it as a kid. But you know, it was while I was in university that, um, that God sort of broke into my life in a, in, a, in a wholly new kind of way, a more mature way perhaps, and joy came with that. I was learning that God wanted all of me, not parts, that's when I really began to open my hands in my life and surrendered my true allegiance and life to Jesus. In that process, you know, I came to find that my worth wasn't based on my performance. Up to that point, it really had been. It wasn't based on how much people liked me or didn't like me. Up to that point, it really had been. It wasn't based on my fitness level or my relative attractiveness or not so much to the opposite sex. Wasn't based on my fi financial situation or job prospects. Basically, I didn't have to worry about girls and my bike anymore. Um, I could just trust God with all of it. I already knew I was loved. That my life had meaning. That my future was secure. And because of that, I gained a rich sense of security. I want everyone to know that sense of security. It comes from a new identity. Knowing that I don't have to create meaning in life for myself. And here's why I want everyone to know it, because it's true. It's why you're here. How do I know that? Well, that's a much longer conversation, but let me put it like this. Your longing to know that you matter is there because, because you do. You're not an accident. And your life does have meaning it's intended to go in a certain direction. If the secular frame is right, then Thomas Nagel is right. You don't matter. No one will remember you. 
That's where the secular frame leads. I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the series, but it's worth going back to. The great U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., he describes what happens when he really thinks coldly, and by that he means reasonably or rationally, rationally from the framework that says, well, there is no God, we're really here by accident. When he thinks coldly about it, he says this, that there is no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Essentially, there's no reason for us being here. If we're a complete accident, not brought about by the purposes of, of the creator, as the materialistic worldview says, humans have no more significance than a grain of sand. Then Holmes went on to say that when he begins to think like this, it's time for him to go downstairs and play solitaire. That's important. What does he do when he lets his beliefs bump up against the ultimate questions? He has to ignore it. Do something to distract himself. Play solitaire. He tells himself, in essence, stop thinking. That's a brilliant thinker, right? This is not a slouch intellectually. His response to the secular frame, stop thinking about it. But it's hard to stop thinking. Uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, also a Christian guy, he puts it like this, the feeling that we do actually have significance, that life does have meaning, keeps breaking in on us. We can't totally ignore it. So if you're honest from the secular frame, then any meaning you do have is just something you have to create for yourself. But here's the rub. You have to create a meaning for yourself that you know isn't true and then lie to yourself about it. Do, do you see how that works out? The Christian frame says that you do have a real objective purpose for your life. It comes from outside of you. And it breaks in on you when you begin to trust the one who made you and who will give you the life you actually want. It's one that's free of guilt. A life that's filled with hope for the future and meaning in the present. Listen, Paul ends this section with these words. And the God of peace, of wholeness and rightness and right relatedness, the God of peace will be with you. For those of you trusting in Jesus, you can walk into the world this week, this afternoon, without fear. Amen. Because God is with you. Not one step you take will be alone. You can turn from fear and anxiety to trust through prayer by bringing all of your concerns before God, the one who loves you, the one who's with you. Yes, the Lord is near. And you have a reason to rejoice. And for those who maybe aren't sure what to do with all this, here's the promise. Through trust in Christ, you are assured of a hope. You are assured of a purpose. You're assured of peace now with God and of hope even beyond this life. This frame, I believe, actually makes better sense of all the data and of our experience in life too. So what would stop you from changing your frame, from letting God change you and the direction of your life? Worship team is gonna come forward as we pray and we'll close our service. Lord, I am so thankful that there is reason to rejoice. I thank you for Christmas, the season that's coming up and for this text in Matthew that says, Jesus, that your name would be given to you is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, that we never walk alone. 
that you have a hope for us, that you have things for us to do in this life that matter and will matter for all of eternity. And I ask, Lord, that you would just be transforming and, and drawing our hearts back to yourself in trust. That if there's anything in our, in our lives, Lord, where we're not trusting you with it, where we're kind of holding onto it ourselves, God, that you would enable us to release those things to you and walk in true trust. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Stand with us as we sing together in closing.